Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. everyone. Today I'm really excited that my first guest is actually my really good friend Tegan. This episode means so much to me because Tegan and I were actually in MBU together. That's how we met and the last year would not have been as supportive and <laughs> amazing as it was without her. So I'm, I'm so honoured that Tegan's here to talk to us about her perinatal story. So I'll leave it over to you Tegan. <laughs> Thanks, Beck. And what came to mind when you said that just then was um, our painting sessions in the MBU at the end when they would be like, okay, it's time for everyone to get some sleep and we'd be there painting away. Yeah. We got in trouble. <laughs> the whole entire MBU and they're like, what is going on here? Um, that's, that's the bit that came to mind and, um, you know, just everyone smiling for a change, which was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm super honoured to be your first guest um, on here and good on you. This is a really important podcast for a number of reasons. You know, postnatal depression and anxiety isn't something that's talked about really a lot, but it's also allowing that advocacy for mental health for all areas as well, which is just becoming more and more important. Um, yeah, so what my story, I might start like right at the beginning um, I have a history of anxiety and um, over my, I guess, childhood and high school years and then into my early, I guess, 20s, that was something that I had to manage and deal with and tended to find that I could have the right tools to do that. There would be occasions, though, where I would have a really big dip and would find that it would become really difficult to manage life and work and university and whatever it was, friendships, relationships and things like that. Um, so it did bring me unstuck a couple of times. But um, in those times, it was wonderful in a way because I learned more skills to handle those difficult dips. Um, and I think that's really important, the more skills you have up your sleeve, because I don't necessarily think that mental health is firstly just about, you know, people that are diagnosed anxiety and depression. I think we all have mental health. Mental health isn't a negative thing. Um, and it's something we've got to look after. So that's what that gave me. Um, I was surprised to find, though, that having had my little girl, Amelia, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, that PNDA did feel a little bit different. Um, so I have two daughters. Um, I have one that is four years old and one that is just one, just turned one. And when I had my first daughter, um, it was a high-risk pregnancy. So I had gestational diabetes, cholestasis, Every time I go in for a heartbeat check, it wasn't always exactly what the midwives wanted. Um, and it was really a bit of a guessing game. I ended up having her at 36 weeks. Um, and I was in hospital probably from about 34 weeks for monitoring. And she was actually a miracle baby. I, in a previous relationship, could not fall pregnant. Um, and so I went into my life considering that that I would never have children. So my first child was this miracle child. And even after her, I didn't believe that I could really fall pregnant. I, I didn't think there'd be another baby. She was just my miracle. Um, and so life went with that. And it was a beautiful experience. Um, she was born in November, my four-year-old. And even the weather makes such a big difference, I think. So, you know, with her, we were going out. We went to cafes. We went everywhere. This was pre-COVID as well. Um, and everything was really exciting. Like everything was new. So... I guess the experience was a really positive one. And I just want to clarify here that you didn't actually experience um, postpartum depression or anxiety with Adeline. No, I didn't. So, um, of course, I had the normal, like, and I don't like using that word normal, actually, levels of anxiety, but I found it very manageable. 
and we were out and about every day. Even with that lack of sleep, I was able to manage life and things like that with her. And that's obviously very, very different to baby number two. Yeah, yeah. So it was really actually quite surprising for me. When I fell pregnant with Amelia, you know, I had Addie and I was excited, but I was also really worried. I, I felt guilty. So Addie and I had been a team, a little duo for all this time. And all of a sudden, our lives were going to change dra- dra- dramatically. Um, and I felt a little bit guilty, like I was letting her down. So I had these little thoughts from literally from the week four of when I found out I was pregnant um, and had these pangs of guilt. But also what happened at that time, I guess, was that I, um, at four weeks pregnant, was diagnosed with gestational diabetes, Graves' disease, and then we knew that I would also get cholestasis further along. So they were concerned about Amelia's heart, and I didn't really find out if she was, you know, going to be okay until she was probably 23 weeks um, when I had a, a special morphology scan. So I had a lot going on in that time period, um, but I probably never really grasped that I was having some difficulties. Like I would find myself getting really worked up about things that probably weren't even important, you know. Um, but it wasn't probably until Amelia was born, and she was great, um, a week later that all of a sudden I just had a, an intrusive thought and that thought was surrounding what I'd done and whether I could love both my girls. Um, and I guess that's where, where I want to take my stories, talking a little bit about that. Because this isn't your first experience with intrusive thoughts or OCD. Obviously, it latched onto not just relationships, but this time the intrusive thoughts latched onto your relationships with your girls. Yeah, yeah. So I had a diagnosis previously of um, anxiety and OCD. So I would have worrying thoughts that would um, continue over and over again. And that's why um, the OCD was diagnosed for that. So it wasn't that I was washing my hands and worrying about, you know, the health of people. I was worrying about what would happen and what if this, what if that. So these intrusive thoughts sort of came in and it was, what if I can't love both these kids? This baby is amazing. Like it's literally like looking at Amelia was like, how the, how did I get this lucky? Like, how did I get two perfect little babies? Like this is amazing. But at the same time, every time I would have that happiness and that thought, my, my mind would go to um, you, don't, you, can't, you, can't, you can't love them both so much and therefore you can't love them both equally um, and then you're a bad person because you can't do that. Um, and this is what led to like a really dangerous cycle of me checking, okay, which is an OCD thing. So I would check how I felt about the girls, which is, I seems like a strange thing to do because obviously you love your kids and you know what, sometimes even though I love them, they're frustrating me. I don't always look at my girls and be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> so these thoughts and these checking measures weren't weren't a really a, a thing that was going to help me, but all of a sudden I was doing that all day. Yeah. And um, every time my brain would come up with a reason why it was silly to be doing this, it would give me another idea about why I wasn't a good person and why I didn't deserve the girls. Um, That went on for probably about two months. And in that two-month period, I sought help from psychologists, GP. Um, I sought help from my obstetrician, who was amazing with it. But in general, the issue was that where I live, there isn't a lot of support. There's really no no support for mums. So I could have gone into a support system, but my baby wouldn't have come with me, which is remarkably common in, a, in New South Wales, in Australia, which is scary. Um, and I found out that through this period of time, people weren't adequately prepared for what postnatal depression and anxiety was. No one actually said that I had it. People were like, yep, you're just having a bad case of anxiety. You'll be right. You'll come out of it. That was sort of the thinking around it. By this time, though, I wasn't sleeping. I was also, I was having trouble falling asleep. And then obviously every time Amelia would wake up, I would have that trouble again. So, um, yeah, I wasn't getting a lot of sleep at this point. And I was continually 
asking for support and trying to get the right things. I did everything that I thought was, I guess, possible when it comes to anxiety and depression and things like that in, you know, to talk about that, to be honest. Like I work in that industry. I'm a, an educator. I work in the area of well-being in education. There wasn't anything that I didn't know about anxiety and depression and how, you know, you need to be your own advocate. Um, but what I learned is that hormones make anxiety and depression a really different thing. And if I can just squeeze in here, I thought let's talk about in terms of the support you tried to get. So there's a service, I guess, in New South Wales called PIMS. Yeah. And do you want to explain a little bit about that and your experience with PIMS? Yeah. That's actually a really good point. Thanks, Beg, for... No, sorry. (laughs) I just thought I know this part of the story and I thought I think it's useful... I think it's a great service, but yep. I also think we need to understand how under-resourced sure. it is. So I um, I ended up in emergency at the hospital and that's where my obstetrician had sent me. I was only, I'd only been out of hospital with Amelia for five or six days. So the plan was that they were going to put me back into the maternity ward and then they were going to get me down to a support. They didn't know quite what yet, but you know, whether it be some type of MBU program or what they were going to do. They just wanted to get me back into hospital and to get me something to sleep. But when emergency got involved, they asked me some questions. Um, and one of them is, again, it's just such a concerning thing for me that they they don't take, you know, this, this is their platform for concern, you know, um, and I guess as a trigger warning, um, you know, the question they ask is, are you going to hurt yourself? Or are you going to hurt your baby? Um, and for me, the answer was no. I didn't have suicidal thoughts um, and I had no intention of hurting my baby, but I was distressed and I was really unwell. Um, and I wasn't function- functioning the way I wanted to function. Um, anyway, so they sent me off and they said, no, you don't need to be in the hospital. You'll be fine. Go home. We prefer you to be home with your baby. And if you don't want to be with your baby, then that's fine. We'll put you into the psych ward. At Gosford. So that was the process. And then I did come home. And essentially, what happened then was I saw the psychiatrist in the hospital the following week. And he signed off and said, She's fine. There's nothing wrong. She'll be over this. Like it's just a bit of anxiety, flicking his hand, and you'll be right. So, a bit of the baby blues, hey? Baby blues. You know, you're, you're week two of having a baby, like give yourself some slack. And I guess I knew myself a little bit better than that. So I knew it wasn't the baby blues. Um, Anyhow, so on one particular day, I did feel quite anxious and I thought I'd ring the PIMS team. I did have the number for them. I was told that they would look after me. But because that psychiatrist had said that I was fine and had had the baby blues, um, I was actually signed out of the PIMS team. So I didn't have that service available to me. Um, And I guess the thing there was that I wasn't over that eight weeks period um, I got increasingly worse and that was an eight-week period that I didn't really get to bond with my baby No, because I wasn't getting the help. No one asked, you know, do you have private health insurance? There's an MBU available. You could go in there. Um, to be honest, I think it was negligent. Mm. It's pretty sad that that's how our system operates and it's really sad that I hear stories that women actually do get separated from their week-year-old baby type of thing, week-old yeah. to go into hospital because they don't think that there's any other options. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you've had these experiences in the past as well, nothing like this before, but you know you needed help. And to be dismissed, I, yeah. yeah. Look, in reality, I should have gone into MBU that week, I think. If I had been admitted into hospital, they would have gone through my options. They would have said, you have private health insurance, MBU is an option for you. Would you like to take that option? And I think that comes down to actually knowing what an MBU is, that it actually exists. But even an MBU in itself is not an easy decision. No. Because, of course, yes, you can be with Amelia, but where's Addie? That's right. So, you know, and that's, I guess, moving forward, we went into COVID lockdown. So um, Amelia was six weeks old when we went into COVID lockdown. Mm. And so my support systems went even further. They dropped further. Um, and the option then was to go to MBU with Amelia. 
with the uh, the thought that you know I could indefinitely not see Adeline. We didn't know how long I'd be in there. Yeah. There's no date. They say three weeks is a general stay at an MBU, but, you know, that all depends on how you are when you are in there. They're not going to let you leave without the support you need. So, And I think it's also important to just mention here there at the time we were both in MBU, which was a year ago, there was one MBU in the whole state of New South Wales and it was private and it was in Sydney and you're not from Sydney. No, so... Yeah, we. I guess we got to that point. Um, should I talk a little bit about my MBU maybe here? It feels like it's the right maybe point. Yeah. So no no doctor, psychologist, et cetera, suggested that St. John of God MBU was a thing or an option. Yeah. They, I don't know what they thought, to be honest. I don't know why. But to this day when I say, oh, yeah, MBU, St. John of God, they go, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. What hospital? I'm like, wow, that scares me. How can the only hospital that had an MBU not be known? Yeah, and I think it's also important to recognise here that it wasn't our medical system that helped you get into no. MBU. It's the village that we talk about. And that whenever I hear this story, first of all, it makes me sad that this was even had to happen but also makes me so happy that as mums we step up for each other so I'm going to let you talk about this because I think it's so important. So as you do these days you end up on support groups so I was on the Australian and New Zealand postnatal depression and anxiety Facebook group it's an extensive group that gets a lot of support like we say that village. I had been messaging on there and saying, I don't know what to do. I've tried this, 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 this and this. I'm doing this, this, this and this. I've seen a psychiatrist. I've seen my psychologist. I've done all these things. I think I've found this MBU and I think I should go. I think I need to take that step. And, um, you know, what happened then was pretty remarkable. So several women got on board and told me their experiences of MBU, that it was, you know, a supportive place and that where things turn around. And I actually found one lady who had been to that MBU. Actually, her photo is up in the MBU. There's a whole range of them. There's a photo of these ladies holding these babies and it says it will get better. So this lady who I don't even think she lives in, I think she lives in maybe the country. I don't even know where she lives. And you have no idea who she is. Like you'd never met her before. This is just a random woman on a support group. Yeah, yeah. Championed for you. Yep. She, ran, she messaged me and said, I need your phone number. I'm going to help you get into this MBU. She told me a bit about it and what she thought. And she said to me, I'm going to give them a call, see what's happening, if you can go in today, what, what's the plan, how they do it. So she arranged my appointment to be admitted into MBU. I then rang the doctor and told them to write a letter. Um, so it was all done by her. She just simply rang me and said, you're going in on Tuesday, all we need, all they need, is your a referral. Referral, yeah. and we're ready for. They're ready for you. They've they've heard. It, I've told them about you. Um, and actually, ironically, she was messaging and calling me and telling me all this while I was on a psychologist appointment. You know, my forty thousandth psychologist appointment for that two weeks type of thing. Like, yeah. Um. So, like, hats off to her. She's an amazing woman. Mm. Um, and I have talked with her quite a bit since. Um. What was remarkable, though, was when I was in MBU, like that first day, she said, I want you to go sit on this chair because I was like, this was a bad idea. Oh, my gosh, I don't know anyone. This is going to be bad. Um, and there's that's the photo wall and there's all these babies and there's all these one-year-olds. Um, it's like the wall of hope that it does get better. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I just think it's incredible that that's how my stay at MBU started. Yeah. It's it's not something you hear very often, but we all, I guess I think we don't hear it because we don't talk about it. I don't think it's a case of, you know, we talk about the village doesn't exist, but I think that, you know, we make our own village mm. when and we're amazing. We can be amazing for each other. We can. Women can. I mean, we can be awful for each other too, but when it comes to these sorts of things, I don't think we're anything but amazing. And I think... I'm just going to talk a little bit about my experience here as well, just in the sense that 
I've had a history with mental illness before and I've always been open about that. It wasn't until I was at my absolute lowest in MBU and I was telling my family and friends that I had so many people raise their hand and say, oh, I was there too or my sister was there, or my auntie was there. And the amount of people in my immediate circle or extended circle who had gone through this and who just never spoke about it, you know, that that breaks my heart. Like how many of us have gone through this, you know, and we know them and we're open about mental health and yet we don't talk about psychiatric hospitals. We don't talk about mother and baby psychiatric units. Because That's on my list to talk about, um, <laughs> Beck. Yeah, no, go, please. <laughs> In five words, stigma dash mental health. Um, yes. Part of it is the stigma to go to an MBU. However, the stigma to go into a psychiatric hospital when you don't have a baby, I think, is gigantic. And oh, I, huge. Like, oh, my goodness. Like, just if ever anyone from a psychiatric hospital is listening to this, good on you because it's uh, that's a scary step. Um, you know, the idea is that, you know, you're, you're a crazy human being that hasn't looked after yourself, that can't probably keep a job down. You probably ha- have been homeless. You probably have some type of addiction. You don't speak to your family. You don't hold down relationships at all. Your life's a mess. You know, that's, that's the picture people get of someone going into a psychiatric ward. Yeah. Like, okay, so my experience has been that the people in those sorts of wards are high overachievers. You know, I remember talking to someone that, look, there wasn't actually, I don't think there was anyone in the psychiatric unit that I was with us that didn't have either several degrees, they were a high-flying career woman. Like there wasn't one of us. And I guess that's the important thing to talk about too is in terms of stigma is um, people don't get help because of these careers. You know, even as a, you know, well-being professional in a school, it's not really accepted that you might have mental health challenges yourself or it may be accepted but it's certainly not talked about. You know, we need to also be able to say, you know what, some people are going to need extra support in this area. It's not different in the terms of it needs medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think enough people are going getting the medical treatment that they need for mental health. Mm-hmm. And I know that's sort of going away from postnatal depression and anxiety a little bit, but um, I just think that the whole area of this really still needs work. Um, I remember when I first had anxiety and depression and it was just something you didn't even talk about. But also, like, just there was no research on anything. I don't really understand why it took so long for us to start to look at things like postnatal depression and anxiety, um, OCD anxiety disorders, psychosis, and all those different different streams of mental health. You know, I couldn't imagine being and having had these challenges, say, 30 years ago. No. It would have been really, really rough. Let's take it back to your first day of MBU. Yeah. Because I remember um, when you walked in and you were sitting in the kitchen area rocking your pram and yeah. you were so nervous and... It was maybe my third-ish week. (laughs) The first two or so weeks I was so in my own world, even though I was surrounded by all these other mums, I wasn't my usual social self and, you know, I was so in my own bubble worrying about myself. But I remember seeing you in the kitchen and I thought, I'm going to make sure she's okay. I'm going to go introduce myself. And I hadn't done that for a couple of weeks. So all these other mums must have thought, God, Rebecca's such, <laughs> such a snob. But well, anyway. I'm glad that, you know, I look worthy to talk to. No. <laughs> well, no, but like I obviously was in a better headspace. Yeah, and I just thought, let me just go say hi because I remember my first day and that was scary. So I just want to make sure you're okay. And, well, I mean, all the other babies were maybe four, five, six months old. Um, Our babies, I mean, Levi was, what, a week when I went (laughs) into MBU? And Amelia was the next oldest, I guess, or the next youngest. Yeah, so she was two and a bit months. Yeah. Old, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, look, so um, I knew I needed to do it. 
but I also was really scared that they couldn't fix me. I remember I think I asked every single person that looked official there, like I'd just be like, can you fix me? There's something seriously wrong with me. Can they fix me? Oh, my God, that was me for like the first week. I would be sobbing in the hallways and every nurse, every psychologist, therapist, psychiatrist, I would be like... I can't get better. Are you yeah, telling like, me it's going to get better? Promise. Am I that broken? And they're like, Rebecca, we promise we have seen this a thousand times. And But that's the thing about mental health. It tricks you. Yeah. Mental illness tricks you into thinking that what you've got is forever. This is you now. Yeah, but also that it's it's something that no one's ever gone through before and yeah, right. you are broken and it will it's impossible to fix because even though other mums got fixed, you won't be fixed. And not that I like the word fixed, right? Of course, of course. And look, I mean, I remember feeling in all seriousness, I actually contemplated um, whether my fiancé Alex and the kids should lock me up in somewhere. Like, because of course, you know, psychiatric wards, there's locked up cages there. Totally. And look, I, I thought, take me off the birth certificate of the girls. That way they can live a good life. And I remember already always thinking of them as 13- and 15-year-old girls. And, um, you know, I imagine teachers saying things like, it's a shame about mum. You know, they're great girls, but it's a shame that mum's, you know, such a mess all the time. Things like that. So, you know, I'm gone 15, 17 years down the track and, you know, it was not worth taking the risk that I should be in their lives. And that's insane. Like, you want to talk about crazy? Well, that's the crazy part is that that was what was going on in my head. And I never, ever shared that probably until I was in MBU. And I was really surprised to hear that a lot of women have similar. similar Definitely. Which is just, um, you know, it's a symptom of, I think that's something that maybe really drives PNDA, um, postnatal as opposed to, say, an anxiety. I, I can't remember ever before thinking that I was, like, I was just in, going to screw my kids up, Yeah. you know, and I truly believed it. And, you know, I couldn't even believe, like, you know, I'd for two and a half years been a great mum, yeah. like an amazing mum. I think I was an amazing mum anyway. Maybe, maybe Addie would have a different story. But <laughs> <laughs> And now all of a sudden I just didn't even believe that any of that mattered. I was not a good mum. I was not worthy of these kids. And that's where the distress comes in. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people realise that, you know, when you have, I mean, specifically postpartum OCD, but in general, whether it's postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression, you believe those thoughts. They aren't just thoughts. They are facts in your head. And if your heart and your head is telling you that your kids deserve better than you, that distress that comes from that, is I can guarantee is the reason most of us ended up in MBU in the first place. And it's ironic because had we looked at it from the outside, we could see, well, the fact you care about your kids enough that you want to protect them means you actually love them. But the OCD and the anxiety and the depression, those thoughts convince you they're better off without me. And that distress is beyond anything I could ever explain in words it just it's very hard to I guess yeah hard to explain that unless you've sort of been there but Mm. you know um it's interesting when I talk to my psychiatrist and he's like his area is OCD and you know he trains other psychiatrists in OCD and he's trying he's you know he's wonderful at, at what he does um and he said a lot of women get diagnosed with OCD for the first time in perinatal so they for sure yeah that's that's then when they can start to understand what that is Mm. and they they, he said that often there'll be little signs of that maybe throughout your life you're a bit of a perfectionist usually you're a high um, achiever Mm. you're not again you're like you're looking at your really switched on high functioning um people women and men um and he said that essentially it's you care so much you care so deeply about making sure everything's great and whether it be your family that you care and love for so much but that's what is that causes it Mm. you um 
you desperately want to make sure everything's okay and that sense of control. And obviously when you have a newborn baby, the first thing that goes is control. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I don't think I slept for three nights with Amelia. She had night day confusion and she was on my chest all night long, every night. Yeah. Um, I thought I was, you know, it was the worst. And I even, it doesn't matter that I'd done it before. I just, I must have obviously blanked that part out because it was still horrible. Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot there. there. I think that people need to get help. That's the other part because I don't think that we're screening for postnatal anxiety and depression. Loud enough. Loud enough. Like I would have been a high candidate for postnatal depression and anxiety. I'd had issues with mental health before, therefore that puts you in a fairly high class for that. Hell yeah. When I spoke to my psychiatrist, he said, I'm surprised it didn't happen with um, Adeline. It's mm. actually really great that you, you've only experienced this once um, and we're surprised that it happened second time, not first, but yeah. um, it's clearly very prominent for psychiatrists and psychologists to be saying things like that. Yeah. It's a hard one because how do you also tell people to, well, it's not that you don't need to care enough, you just need to back off from, from those thoughts all the time. Yeah, and that's the thing. With OCD, obviously, thought challenging doesn't necessarily work. We cannot think our way out of OCD. There is no logic you can apply that will take away the emotion from those thoughts. And it requires, you know, whether it's DBT or exposure or, you know, there's so much we can do with OCD, but so often it gets swept under the umbrella of anxiety yes and that's that's a huge problem it, and it's a huge problem because we don't have that many um psychiatrists and psychologists that are trained in OCD no like you assume you go to a psychiatrist and they are a professional in everything but if we want to think about that for a second that psychosis um that schizophrenia that's all the different anxiety disorders all the different depression disorders OCD like that's not there's probably thousands more Hmm. obviously they're going to have a particular area they're interested in you know that's like saying that it's a heart surgeon but it's also a neurologist at the same time like a you know so we, we what we need to do is we need to have more psychiatrists that are trained in particular areas and not just OCD but perinatal OCD yeah, that's right. And um, psychosis is another one. Like, oh, huge. You know, I know that you had the experience um, of things, witnessing someone with psychosis, mm. and I've not had that. But, um, you know, I do remember reading all of the stuff. You know, I was in bed going, there's something completely wrong with me. What have I got? And looking at what psychosis was. And, mm. you know, it's we need people that are able to diagnose promptly and get the right treatment quickly, which, again, it doesn't happen I'm just going to go back a second, if it's okay to talk about medication. Yeah. Because things were actually so good with Addie, you weren't on medication. No, I'd actually stopped taking medication. I had been on a low-end, I guess, antidepressant for a very, very long time. Um, It had been brought up when I went through a few traumatic situations and then dropped back down and I'd sort of forget taking it and thought, you know what, I don't think I need to. Um, and that was the advice by the GP as well. GPs will often tell you you can't be on antidepressants if you're going to have babies, um, which is absolute rubbish. Again, the reason that I'm such an advocate for going to see a psychiatrist, particularly one that is, um, you know, skilled in postnatal depression, anxiety, because they will tell you that if you've been on medication prior to having your babies, my understanding is that it is much safer to be on it than to be off it. And I mean, obviously, that's up to the relationship between the individual and their doctor. Oh, 100%. Yeah, but it's still such a misunderstood it is. area. So my doctor was of the opinion that I needed to be offered, mm. um, but that was probably not the best decision um, given my history. But it worked out with Addie. Well, no, it didn't. So I had not been off it then. It was after Addie when life got very busy. Oh, I thought it was before Addie. No, no. Okay, so. That could play a role in the difference. So just to confirm with Addie, you'd been on medication for a long time, even during pregnancy and afterwards, and you didn't experience postpartum depression or anxiety beyond you know your normal levels of yeah I guess normal let's use that word in quotes yeah. um, normal levels of anxiety 
Yeah, that's right. And so you then went off your medication because things were actually so good. Yes. I just think that it's an important question that needs to be answered by someone skilled. And um, I hear way too often that GPs say that it's dangerous to be on that, but they, they think it's dangerous to be on anything generally. That's the stock standard viewpoint is my understanding. Um, and I would just urge people to get make sure that they get the right advice. Well, especially if you've got a history of yeah. mental <laughs> ill health. Yeah, um, yeah, because it, it's not worth messing around with really. So you've had Amelia and you're in MBU. Let's talk, let's talk about MBU, I think, because that is such a big part of your story. Yeah. Um, MBU was amazing. So firstly, um, I remember sitting in group and I wasn't the only one with my legs shaking, which was great. <laughs> we were sitting next to each other, weren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Of course, out the normal well, people would be like, oh, my God, Tegan, you're shaking. I'm like, yeah, I'm ridiculously anxious right now about everything. Yeah. Um, in fact, don't even talk to me because you'll give me something to be anxious about. Um, but when I was in there, I'm like, everyone's like me. This is awesome. Yeah. rang Alex and I was like, Alex, everybody is like me. He was like, yep, you're not alone. <laughs> you're not special. No. Um, but it's a nice feeling to know we're not yeah. alone. We're not crazy. We're not broken. Right. We're just going through something yeah. that we have absolutely zero control over. Yeah, 100% normalised it for me. Mm. This is something, and we're not going to put a date on it or a time on it. It just is what it is. Mm. This is what we're going to do. Um, it's going to suck, but you'll be right. Yeah. You'll learn, And, you know, you learn almost, I think, you learn great skills. Like the, the psychiatrist there the nurses, the social workers, the psychologists, oh, my goodness. Like you haven't, I have not seen a more wonderful team working together firstly, Mm. which I think is important, caring, compassionate, but knowing their stuff and knowing what you need. Because I must admit, a three-week period, you know, you've been unwell for, say, eight weeks. You think, what do you mean three weeks? Like how am I going to get better in three weeks? But... I guess, firstly, it isn't about getting better. But secondly, the skill base that they know you need, like down to, like I thought I knew a thing, mm. like I'd done ACT. Um, I'm a huge fan of ACT, so over cognitive behavioural therapy, to be honest, and that's because of the fact that, you know, overanalyzing your thoughts is something I do already. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm good at that. So I quite liked the idea of learning to sit with thoughts and feelings and, you know, it also had a really beautiful connection with mindfulness, which I'm also a huge fan of. Um, but they also t- had other skill sets for things like when you're really distressed. Mm, distress tolerance skills. Which... Yeah, DBT it's called. So I'd never heard of it before. But um, And I was great in the, I guess, the non-peak periods of that anxiety. I could manage, I could function, clean my house. I could do all the things I need to do. I could look after my babies and play with them and but when I was at those high peaks that you get in a, you know, a period of PNDA, uh, that was when I struggled because I couldn't use any of my skills. It was, and that was frustrating me a lot. It was great to hear things like, you're not going to be able to use any skills when you're that stressed out and anxious. Mm. You know, that's not a time to sit down and start trying to, you know. Analyse. <laughs> you know, that, that's not a time to be trying to do any of that you know, and being able to learn some of those DBT skills. And they sound a bit crazy, to be honest. We use the word. Like when they first said, we're going to like put our head in a bucket of ice. Yeah, no, I did not volunteer for that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually did just <laughs> in my last my last session. So you went there, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm, I think I probably need to do this before I go because <laughs> I was so anxious about leaving. But, um, yeah, and the cold shower, I remember someone just saying, I had a cold shower this morning um, and I was like, because I, I was learning about this the day day two mm. <laughs> and I was like, people are having cold showers? It's the middle yeah. of winter. What are we doing? Um, but they it actually does work and it's really interesting from the neurological point of view of how it um, just sort of puts that, stopper in the nervous system system at that time you know I I obviously can't talk about it completely from a neurological point of view I have the notes on it Um, (laughs) but not only is it fascinating but it works so 
yeah, I think they were some some really wonderful skills. Um, and like down to the personalization, I have a pink sheet that I had up yeah. in my room and then that I have at home. And it's like the 20 how-tos to manage acute OCD anxiety. From our favourite psychotherapist. Um, yeah. Amazing. And in actual fact, she's done one for depression as well, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, just those things that you need to be doing. One of the things that came up a lot was that trust. Mm. And it's kind of been something I think about a lot because, you know, what is it about, what causes someone to, you know, apart from the hormones, to start questioning everything? And I guess it does come back down to that what you're rebuilding is that trust in yourself Mm. that you can do this and that you actually have every right and every brilliance in doing this, you know. Um, We are actually, you know, we're all brilliant at what we do regardless of what mistakes we might make. There's no perfect person. But um, that really, that was a big one around that trust. Um, You have so much trust in other people but when you lose that trust in yourself, that's that's when things get challenging, I think. And I guess the other part of it was self-compassion. There was a lot of sitting with and learning to accept that this was a rough period of time. And I think the thing about MBU was the getting real as well. We got real in those sessions. There was no, like, sugarcoating of, you know, you're going to come out of this and you're going to be skipping down the hallways. and Mm, No toxic positivity. No toxic positivity, which I think is brilliant. Um, because there's, there's one thing that anybody that's got any form of anxiety and depression does not need, it's toxic positivity, you know. You let the person be what they are, um, I think was the big message there. And, of course, the other huge part of the healing process, I think, is the connection that we all made together, Beck. We were, I guess, lucky in that it was COVID. It was a really weird period of time, I have to say. Um, we would have been the only people actually some of the only people that were socialising and having a mum's group, to be oh, honest. Oh, for sure. So in some ways there's a little blessing in that, you know. I We've got our own little talk group that we message in and sometimes that's about our check-ins and how we feel, but sometimes it's also about where do you buy those little booties things that your <laughs> kid's got or did your kid get conjunctivitis? What do you do with that? Yeah. Like, and, uh, you know, my friends around me that have had babies at the same time, they don't have a mother's group. No. But we do, and I think that that's a really beautiful thing that we were lucky to have. Um, but what's beautiful about a mother's group where you've kind of aired everything, and that was huge, and the normalising of mental health that was around, you know, a group of women being able to say, these are the things that are happening to me what's happening to you oh my goodness I can see some similarities you poor thing how are you going with that yeah. you know I remember making someone a cup of tea remember you because they weren't feeling great at the time these are the sorts of things I think that allowed us some healing as well oh, um, for sure and I mean Levi was still little when I got out of MBU yeah. so I was put into a mother's group and yes it was all um via zoom which is fine but it was hard because, you know, everyone's talking about baby sleep and feeding and what's your play schedule. And I just, I couldn't relate in one slight, like in the slightest. So yes, even though, yes, my baby slept and ate and played, (laughs) you know. That wasn't the things that you were no, that wasn't the thing that was causing me any distress. You know, I'd woken up that morning thinking I should give up my baby for adoption and we, we're going to talk about baby sleep right now. Yeah. It just, and it's so important. Don't get me wrong. Those mother's groups are so important, but I just yeah. felt like an alien. I think there's something to say around that. Do we need to have and set up perhaps mother's groups for those with anxiety and depression, whether they've got PNDA or have a history of we could probably be bringing those people together you can't tell me that in any city there wouldn't be enough mothers that have either experienced it having a baby another baby or have start had their first baby that we couldn't bring together yeah and I think that 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 ability to be able to talk completely openly about your feelings Mm. is so um incredibly important to someone that is struggling with mental health like you're constantly pretending around mm. people 
to just get through that bit, to get through that day or whatever it may be. The people that know the exacts of those crazy intrusive thoughts or the, you know, the fact that you had that thought that maybe you should have your baby adopted out or for me, you know, that I'd made a terrible mistake, Mm. um, that I didn't deserve my children. So I think you need a space to be able to air those things. Oh, for sure, because we do put on that brave face. You know, I'm not going to go up to a group of women I've never met and say, guess what, I just got discharged from a psychiatric hospital. As much as I'm doing that now with my, you know, the podcast and the social media, it's out there now. But at the time, that's not something you go and say to someone you've just met. You know, not in a social situation where you're, oh, your baby's so cute and, oh, look, you know, like we don't talk about that. And it's isolating, you know, and it wasn't until I was in MBU with you guys sitting around that I actually learnt the intricacies of OCD. So I was diagnosed maybe three weeks postpartum, but the more I could chat to you guys about it, the more I learnt, first of all, We've had this since, you know, I was maybe five, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. But, you know, some of the things that I've thought, oh, my God, I'm not crazy. Other people have had that thought oh, too. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh, what if we're, you know, what if we do want to hurt our babies because yeah. we keep seeing these horrible intrusive images of them being harmed? That's right. And, oh, but hang on, what if I am actually a horrible person and I'm just convincing other people I'm a nice person? Like yeah. that thought process to know that, that's not just me. Yeah. And to be able to sit around and talk about that with a group of mums was everything. It was absolutely everything. And that's the mother's group that I needed. And I'm so grateful that we had that. And that's it. Like I, um, like I've had both experiences. I have the most amazing group of women that I'm friends with from my mother's group with Adeline. And at the time I was new to the area. I needed friends. You know, I ended up building this beautiful group, but that's not what I needed with Amelia. Mm, we needed something very different. Yeah. Um, in fact, I would imagine that a mother's group would be incredibly intimidating mm. for a mum that's going through PNDA. But um, in saying that too, I would hope, like I would rather a mum be there than nowhere um, and not have any connections at all. Um, I loved the fact that I had time for myself. I'd forgotten probably that you need time for yourself I did so much yoga when I was there (laughs) and um the creative outlets were really important for me Mm. and sleep oh my goodness I I didn't believe them when I said when they said that sleep would be important and that they were going to take Amelia for a week at night and I was going to sleep I thought no I haven't had sleep in years like how could having a sleep (laughs) help um but it did it helped heaps you know my ability to be able to you know stay at maybe a less heightened level had a lot to do with how I was sleeping Mm. so I guess looking after yourself is a huge part whether you're in MBU or not and I just want to make a note here that like having your baby taken off you for the night is first of all very intimidating (laughs) so for me I was like yes sweet you want to take the baby that sounds great but um, maybe the second mums, if you're listening, would be laughing at that because I can imagine that as a first-time mum it would be Oh, like scary. for a solid week I was like, no, I'm a mother. I need to sacrifice yeah. my sleep. That's what I do, you know, <laughs> and I refuse to let them take Levi overnight and that cost me. I had to yeah. start again almost in week yeah. two when I realised I need to trust them and their process and it was absolutely everything to be able to hand Levi over and know, okay, it's not like they're going to sleep train, cry it out. You know, they're very responsive. These are mothercraft nurses, That's you right. know. They're not evil and they're, they're not going to let my baby scream in a room for hours. They were so lovely They and they let you sleep. Yeah. And the difference that that made for both myself and my husband, I cannot begin to tell you how things started to change for me after that point sleep is a huge Mm. um yeah it's incredibly huge yeah but that yeah the mother craft nurses are amazing I guess the last thing I'd say about MBU is that I wish I did it earlier I wish I'd in that second week when I had that hunch that this wasn't going to get easier quick unless I had a higher level of care um I wish I just pushed past 
all the other, you know, medical advices that mm. were given to me and just trusted myself. Yeah. Um, although at the same time, I probably wouldn't have met you, met you and the other mums. <laughs> um, and I'm heartbroken always that we still only have a one new public MBU that just opened mm. and one private. Like how is yeah. that a thing? Why isn't there one on the Central Coast? Why isn't there one in Newcastle? Why isn't there one in Wagga, Albury? Because I can, can't even begin to imagine how many women right now are sitting there going, I need these helps. And they either don't have the financial capacity to get into the private system, into that one MBU, mm. or the waiting list for the New South Wales public one. It's in um, RPA. RPA, that's right. Their, their wait is three months, I'm sure. I couldn't imagine that, that they mm. were able to do the job that they need to do in that MBU mm. without having extensive wait times. Oh, and it's also the distance, you know, the amount of time yes. it takes to travel to an MBU. I was very fortunate. I live 20 minutes away from the MBU that I didn't even know was there, but was there my whole life. (laughs) And it was 20 minutes away. How many women, you know, their partners who have to work, who then can't come visit and help. Um, The big part of the MBU experience is having your partners stay as well, which might shock people to hear, but your partners are incorporated into, into the, the therapy and into the program. Gosh, Alex and I wish we were at MBU all the time. We're like, we had the most amazing like dates there because we would hire, we'd get food and menu log was our friend <laughs> and um, we'd sit at one of those tables together and we'd eat our Vietnamese or whatever it was. Yeah. Big fan of those Nutella calzones. <laughs> um, ate a lot of those. That was amazing. We often like reflect on that period of time and going someone like, was looking after our baby while we did that. Like, mm. how often does that even happen now? And Not like, at all. If you have a second kid at home, like you did, you know, you had Addie at home, and so Alex was there most of the time right. yeah. and was able to come on weekends, but. Not everyone can do that. Not everyone can drive three hours into Sydney. Like, there were mums from the ACT there. That's right. And that's blowing my mind as well. I must say hats off to Victoria. Melbourne, mm. They have more than one. I don't. I couldn't even tell you how many, but an MBU down there was something that people knew about. They are obviously doing something right mm. down there because um, it wasn't an unheard of thing. Mm. So there's obviously several. Um, I think we need to consider, too, the pre-care that people have. Mm. You know, um, I had a very high-risk pregnancy. That's a fairly high indicator that percentage that I would have ended up with postnatal anxiety and depression but on a piece of paper. It would have looked like the odds of me not getting it were probably stacked against me. Mm. But um, maybe there's something we can do in the health system to support that screening space as well. I'm not sure, but <laughs> always good to throw these things out there. For sure. And I mean how many mums go undiagnosed during pregnancy only to reach crisis point in postpartum? And as we know, what's the statistic? 74% of mothers don't ask for help until they are at crisis point. How many women are then in an acute mode of suffering and, you know, presenting at emergency rooms, presenting to hospitals, you know, to their GP, just begging for help at that crisis point when potentially there could have been intervention Early. when things were mild or moderate, you know, before that, we got to that point. I think that's the concern I have. How did how did I, seeing I like accessed healthcare from day one of mm. my anxiety, um, end up mm. putting myself into hospital mm. eight months later? Yeah. Just, I don't know, it's something that I think needs to be addressed. Yeah you know and thank goodness you do have that experience you do have that knowledge and you were asking for help from anyone and anywhere you could find it but it shouldn't be that hard all I wanted was someone else to say I think you should consider this option yeah or there's this option I've been through it it's the best thing yeah um but it is interesting that again like we say the village Mm. is the communicator of these things Mm. that village how do you know um yeah yeah so that's a fairly major concern 
moving forward. I am glad to hear they're getting, I think, an, another MBU at Westmead. Yeah. Um, I know that there's consideration for one on either in Newcastle or in the Central Coast Newcastle region mm. um, that's being pushed for. But, yeah, it's it's obviously a matter of urgency that we use our money in that for that. Yeah. As well. And our voices, really. Yeah, that's it. Any last thoughts, anything you would tell yourself or tell a mum who's yeah. potentially going through this? So I'd say that you need to take time for yourself, whether you like it or not. You need to do it on the days that you don't want to do it. So whether it be I, I painted, I painted and painted and painted and I did yoga and sometimes I did yoga with Amelia on the mat and sometimes I did it without her. I needed to ask for help and I needed to be very direct about the asking for help. Um, you need to be very self-compassionate and get the help that you need. You, um, you Your brain will not tell you that you maybe deserve that help. I don't know. Everyone's different. But you you need to not listen too hard to that and just know that you deserve the help that you can get. I guess my final point would be that being a mum of two um, complicates your life. Mm. And uh, I guess I was kind of like, I'm not allowed to have this. I'm not a mum of one anymore. I know what I'm doing. So therefore, you know, I should be on top of everything. So it is different. It is different having two babies and um, depending on, you know, the differences in months and years and things like that. But it's also great um and there's absolutely nothing wrong with having pnda the second time the third time the fourth time fifth six seven eight nine ten however many babies you want to have don't don't push any stigma onto yourself around the fact that it's not just about having one baby and that's the thing like how we talk to ourselves and convince ourselves that we're not worthy of help or that we don't deserve to feel it's not that we wish it on someone else. It's that we feel like we're taking it away. We're taking away support from someone who may need it more. And that internal dialogue, I mean, even I was saying that to myself. I had one baby and he slept well. He yeah. ate well. He was easy breezy. And I convinced myself I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be feeling the way I do because I have no reason to complain. Yes. And we're just not talking Postnatal depression and anxiety has nothing really, well, apart from the fact that the baby's born, but it's not about that baby. If that baby's a great sleeper or whether that baby's a bad sleeper, it doesn't matter. Mm. It is about your emotional health. Yeah. Um, and it's very much also a medical issue. Don't, I guess there was no real tangible reason for me. I had no idea why the, the switch flicked. Maybe now I can look back and I can reflect and go, well, maybe I was a little bit too wound up I was very anxious and stressed about the um the way the pregnancy was going there were other factors in my life at that time that were not particularly easy the COVID pandemic um I can see that now but back then I absolutely could not see that there was any factor that had caused mm. my um, anxiety other than myself so yeah that's a bit of an important one too is just to not not go searching too hard for the answers for sure. I mean, it doesn't mean you're broken, you know, it just, this is how our brains have responded to a certain situation. And whether that situation is, you know, tangible reasons, or whether that situation is just a flood of hormones or our psychology, that we don't need to know the answer to that. But we do deserve help regardless. Yes, 100%. Like I said before, this this talk has meant the world to me and I've wanted this one to be our first chat because Tegan means so much to me and was instrumental during my time at MBU and also my time outside of MBU. To have that support system of someone who's gone through it, just having that support to get us through, I think, safe to say, one of the hardest times of our lives or the hardest times of our lives. Yeah. Um, being able to have Tegan on here and share her story 
means a lot to me because I know how incredible her story is and I know how incredible she is. So a big thank you to Tegan for taking the time to share her story and hopefully give someone hope and make sure that they know that they're not alone either. Thanks so much, Beck. Look, it's an absolute privilege to have been able to talk about this area. I'm really, really passionate about mental health um, in all the areas. And um, like you say, that that ability to be able to contact and have that connection with other people going through it has been just, you know, the most precious gift um, that I could have. And yeah, I'm very, very thankful for your friendship. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate, though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.